0: I don't still count in my blessing. Hello everybody. Welcome back to Ignite Radio Live. We are so blessed to have you journeying with us in these grace-filled weeks we are calling the Song 2 series featuring the incredible, awesome, wonderful presentations of the Franciscan Friars of the Renewal with worship from renowned recording artist... Seth Schleter. I can say that. I'm his mom. If you are wanting to hear all of these great episodes on demand, go to IgniteRadioLive.com. And we're inviting you to be more than just spectators or sitting and enjoying just listening, but to embrace this grace being offered more fully alive in marriages and families through what we are calling the seven-week challenge. What's that? We are asking you, challenging you, inviting you to bring your family together once a week for a meaningful time of talking and praying using the Live It Gathering Guide. We know it'll be a challenge. We know there may be pushback from your spouse, from your children, from yourself, but we encourage you to just do it. Go to massimpact.us forward slash seven week challenge. That's massimpact.us forward slash the number seven week challenge. It's not too late. And I promise you the Lord will meet you there. It'll be the best advent flowing into Christmas ever. And finally, we ask you to please partner with us. Our full-time mission is to unite families in building the kingdom Go to massimpact.us and click the partner button. Thank you so much. God bless you. And now, on with the program.
1: I am really encouraged just seeing all the families, all the young people together, all the moms and the dads together. I live, I'm currently assigned in Newark, New Jersey, and within about, I don't know, within about a mile of our friary, we're pretty close to a fair amount of the, the individuals and the mothers and their children that live around there, but I quite honestly don't know of a single intact family of all the people that we work with. Our culture is so broken, but it's a beautiful shot in the arm for us to be here today. Don't think that the witness you give isn't a very strong example to the world and to the church of who God is, who his love is, and the fidelity that is necessary. Uh, Father Malachi, the priest that gave the talk this morning, and I joined the community of Franciscans about 15 years ago together. Uh, We were ordained at different times. He mentioned his prayer card, something along the lines of, in Elvish, the dawn will break again. There is a hope. Uh, Mine was a little bit less original, maybe. It was inspired by the Holy Spirit from the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah 31 I have a plan for you, not for disaster, not for woe, but I have a hope for you. And we know that, right? We know that to be true, but there's a difference of whether or not we can live that in our hearts and in our minds, knowing that God has something that is true, that is better than what we can imagine, no matter how dark or negative our world might be. What is it that we hold on to? And is it the reality of God's hope or is it something totally different? a fallen witness that this world gives. And we need to hold on to that hope, that hope that is reality above everything else. Uh, Father Malachi also, he gave, he read that story uh, of Peter, right? Walking out on the water, and then Peter's starting to sink because he takes his eyes off of Jesus. But what do the scriptures tell us that Peter, that Peter actually saw, and therefore he begins to be afraid? It's a fine detail that oftentimes is overlooked. Matthew's version of the story, Matthew 14, what did Peter see that made him afraid? Peter saw the wind, and he became afraid. Of course, he took his eyes off of Jesus. He saw the wind and becomes afraid. Now, this isn't anywhere in the church fathers. You're not going to find it in any commentaries, but it's not an inappropriate way to think about it. When the wind is used throughout the scriptures in many different places, what's it an image for? For the Holy Spirit, right? Peter takes his eyes off of Jesus, albeit, right, we never should do that. Peter looks out, and he sees the roughness around him, and he sees the wind. In a sense, he doesn't recognize what he's witnessing, but he sees what either God is doing or what God is allowing to be done. And rather than holding on to the hope and the truth and the very person of Jesus Christ that he knows, what does he do? He becomes afraid. And therefore, he starts to sink. But thanks be to God, he has a Savior. He has a Redeemer, just as you and I do because he needs one, and just as you and I do because we need one. That no matter what the world may offer, no matter what we might get caught up in, no matter how strong that wind might become in the world of what God is allowing for the Holy Spirit to be operative and to maybe break into our lives a little bit more, there's absolutely nothing that we have that we should give in to fear over other than taking our eyes off of Jesus. May we keep our eyes on him, to hold on to him, to not be afraid of whatever it is that might come, knowing that God is at least allowing that for a much greater good, even if that good is simply to break within our own hearts so that he can be the king in there rather than us trying to stay on our own throne and hold on to it. So much of it is perspective, but that perspective of living in reality, of how we see it and how we choose to live it. I'm assigned to our friary in Newark. It's a 130-year-old Dominican convent The Dominicans moved out about 20 years ago because the neighborhood got so bad, no man in his right mind would allow his daughter to move into a neighborhood like that. So we moved in, we took the razor wire off of the walls all the way around the friary, we took the bars off the windows, and we've slowly done our best to rebuild the place. We're only about, we're probably about three miles from the Newark airport. It's one of the worst areas you can imagine. And if you can imagine something bad that goes on, it goes on right outside the walls of the monastery that we live in. And it was about, about six years when I first moved in. And the superior of the friary pulls out a little note. He says, Father Felix is flying in from Honduras at midnight on Friday night. Who wants to go pick him up? Well, I'm the little guy on the totem pole, right? So, of course, I want to go pick up Father Felix at the airport at midnight on Thursday night, whatever night of the week it was. And before I get out of the lot where we park our cars in, all the lights in the dashboard are on. The lights on the dashboards of all our cars look like Christmas trees. I say a prayer at that point. Father, please let me get to the airport before this thing breaks down. And the father, he's very good. He listens to my prayers. I got onto the property of the airport, and guess what happens? Car breaks down. So it's not like a heavily populated area onto the airport property. It's still a long runway with not a whole lot of cars running around and a whole lot of individuals from the surrounding neighborhood still doing a lot of shady stuff in that area. So I do the universal sign for I'm broken down. I get out of the car. I pop open the hood. I'm underneath the street light, and I hold a pair of jumper cables. And I'm at the absolute mercy for the next person that's going to show up, whoever that might be. A taxi comes up and pulls up behind me. And I see this woman poke her head out of the car and look at me. And I say, it's okay, I'm a a Catholic priest, I'm broken down, I think I just need to jump. So this beautiful Nigerian woman gets out of the taxi cab, the taxi cab driver, and she says, oh father, I too am a Catholic, I'm a charismatic Catholic. She breaks into a little dance, she prays over the broken down vehicle I'm in, I'm thinking to myself, I'm the religious professional here, I should be the one doing this, She jumps the car. I'm up and running again. She asks for a blessing. I bless her. She already has blessed me immensely. She goes on her way. I get back in the little Toyota, the RAV4 we have, and at this point, my prayer is, Father, let me get to Father Felix before this thing breaks down again, right? And the father is super good. He listens to my prayers. I get to the terminal. Father Felix gets in, and it's as if there was a kill switch on the passenger seat. Father Felix sits down. And guess what happens? Yeah, the vehicle breaks down again. Father Felix looks at me, and he says, Father Stephen, it's good to see you. You realize I've been in transit for about 18 hours. Stop playing around. Let's go home. And I said, Father Felix, you don't know what I've been going through either. I'm trying to. At that point, the police officer comes, and then he taps on the window with his flashlight. He says, son, you can't just sit here. You've got to go home. The officer, I would love to. He's, I'm broken down. He says, well, you need to call a taxi. You need to call a wrecker. That officer, I said, officer, I don't have a cell phone. Can you help me out here? He says, yeah, we have a record, but all they can do is get you just off of the property of the airport, but you'll have to use your credit card. And I said, well, officer, that's another problem. I don't have a credit card either, and he looks at me like I'm crazy. I said, so I tried to explain. I'm a Catholic priest. I'm a Franciscan. He says, okay, I, I too am a Catholic. I'll call the record for you. We'll get you off of the, We'll get you off of the property. Good. And as we're, Father Felix and I are climbing into the cab, the Toyota's on the back of the record truck. We're pulling right off of the property of the airport where he's supposed to drop us off. And he's asking us, you know, what are you, right? Are are you Jedis? (laughs) We're Catholic priests. We're Franciscans. And at this point, he slams on the brakes. He pulls over on the side of the road. It was right after the McCarrick scandal where priests weren't everybody's best friend. And as he's slamming on the brakes and he's pulling over on the side of the road, as soon as he finds out we're priests, I'm looking in the rear everywhere mirror of where I can jump out and make a good quick getaway. As he reaches behind the seat in this quick dramatic reach, thinking he's going for a gun, I hear the all too familiar sign of rosaries clanging. He pulls them around and he says, Ah, I, too, am a Catholic. I'm a charismatic Catholic. I say, ah, if you ever want to find these guys, they hang out at the airport in Newark around 3 o'clock in the morning, right? He prays over the rosaries. He prays for Father Felix and I by name, gives us each a rosary, tells us his witness, right, his conversion story, and he takes us to our friary, you know, about two miles away, not a big deal, but much further than he was supposed to be able to do so. He drops us off in the parking lot in the back of our friary. I run inside to grab a check to be able to pay for it. I come back out with the check, and he's driving off. At that point, I've had a fairly rough night, right? I wasn't counting my blessings. I was just kind of wallowing in my own self-pity. I was exhausted. I was frustrated. I was without sleep. And things weren't really going the way I wanted them to go. I had a very busy day ahead of me. I don't exactly remember the details, but it's hard to function without any sleep, as every mom and dad in this room knows. And then I saw the sun start to come up, the beautiful red, the orange. And I had this moment of grace, this recognition of how good God had been to me over the last four hours of this grand fiasco where God showed up in every nook and cranny and provided in every way possible that I never would have even thought I could have asked him to. And at that point, I realized, right, there's a lot of maturation that has to happen in my own heart to get on the same wavelength of God, of my father, to know that no matter how difficult things might get, how nasty things might get in the world, there's a perspective that he has of goodness, of care, of love. And either I'm on that wavelength of recognizing how it's happening and playing out in every second, or I'm just kind of worried about self-perseverance and trying to finagle things to happen the way I think they should happen. If you love Pope Benedict's writings, a lot of his thought is rooted in St. Bonaventure. And, of course, he's very well rooted in all the healthy traditions of the church. But Franciscan theology often is looked upon as a bunch of heretics sometimes, and we do have our own share of heretics in the Franciscan tradition, but we have some of the greatest church doctors as well. And Bonaventure will also speak of creation not only bursting out of the heart of the Trinity, of this divine dance that's given to all of us as an invitation to get out on the dance floor and live life in this way of love, So Father Malachi mentioned earlier, his favorite book was the Sumerellian. The creation account in the Sumerellian is this love song that bursts forth. Where's Tolkien getting this from? He's getting it from the book of Genesis. (laughs) The reality of all creation being this divine love song from God for us, for you, Miss Diane, right? This divine love song. And it's up to us whether we are going to follow the notes of this love song or whether or not we're just going to hold back and add distortion to that divine love song that God is trying to sing. Another, another image that Bonaventure will use of creation, and this is my favorite. It's a stream, a waterfall, bursting forth from the heart of God, that his love is so intense, it has to be creative. And therefore, creation bursts forth, including us to where everything we see in visible visible reality should be a reminder of the goodness of God's heart bursting forth from who he is. And that includes each one of us. That's the healthy view of reality that is a healthy interpretation of the big picture of divine revelation. And if we settle for anything less than that, we are settling for less than who God is and who it is that he created us to be, to live in that. The title for the talk I was given this afternoon was Family Culture Slash the Rosary. And I saw now it's titled In the Arms of Our Lady, the Arms of Our Mother. Whatever it is, right? Our Lady is central to the whole thing because God chose it to be that way. But for us to live in a healthy culture and a family, as families... We have to allow reality to shape our hearts. And that whole idea of the culture, of being able to live within this dance, this love, song of the Trinity, really has to form who we are so that that can flow out of us rather than the culture shaping us as well. And if you take that term culture, i uh, just trying to figure out a little bit of the etymology of it. There's One of my favorite books is Joseph Peeper's Leisure as a Basis of Culture. And he'll talk about uh, the relationship between the term cult and culture. And cult, of course, Lee, uh, healthy, of course, a healthy definition of that is simply worship. But also coming from the, the Latin term culture, we also get the same term that we that they would have used for cultivate. So cultivate, if you have a, a garden, a plot of land, the hard work that is necessary to be able to make that garden actually produce something, it takes a lot of toil, a lot of work, a lot of effort, and a lot of patience to make the ground actually produce something. Fruitful, healthy, beautiful. And for us to be able to have healthy cultures, Brother Damien and I, for example, in our religious life, for all of you in your family lives, I think that's a good example. Go back to the book of Genesis again, chapter 2. God creates Adam and Eve. He places them in the garden. And the command that he gives to Adam, remember, to till and to keep, to create a healthy culture in that garden, right? Husbands, fathers, your garden is your family. To both till, to work hard, to make sure that culture is healthy, but to also keep, right, to protect it to keep out all the things that are unhealthy, all the things that can destroy. Man was made to worship. We become what it is that we do worship. And if you look at the secularized West, Western Hemisphere, rates of depression, rates of anxiety, rates of suicide go up and up and up. The more and more we turn away from the Lord. The most baptisms in this last year, of anywhere in the world, happened in northern Africa. And if you look at the images of the children in Africa, you see nothing but white teeth smiling, right? Super happy, super joyful. They're not yet imbued by the secularism and the materialism that we have bought into as a culture. Their hearts are still free to worship The one true God, right? The one thing that ultimately will make them happy, that will fulfill them. And that's what we're made for, right? Either we're living in this world and we're given into the dance of this world, or we're willing to enter into that divine dance, that dance with the Holy Trinity. And this is the battle for our hearts. And whatever we give into will shape our hearts, whether it is the gospel, whether it is divine revelation, whether it is God's grace, or whether it is the outside culture. And fathers and mothers, your heart is the one that will shape your children's hearts. Allow your heart to be formed by Jesus Christ and by his grace, and your children's hearts will follow. If you allow your hearts to be formed by the world, your children's hearts will follow the world. Fight for it. Fight for it, please. John Paul II, in 1981, Familias Consortio, he writes on his letter to the families after uh, the Senate on the family, I believe, at least a small, small working group of families. He tells them that the family is the basic cell of society. The wisdom that John Paul II carries with him, if you think about a cell in the human body, That cell becomes weak, that cell becomes damaged. What happens? Uh, Illness, sickness, death. Not only that cell dies, but the organism that that cell is part of begins to die. Same thing that happens, right? In our families, once the family starts to break down, once the husband, once the wife's, the mother's heart starts to steer away from the gospel... That basic family unit no longer can operate the way God intends it to. That family starts to break down, and therefore, society also starts to crumble because the basic unit that society is made of is no longer properly functioning. Sister Lucia, the seer from Fatima that passed away back in 2008, she wrote a letter to Cardinal Kafara, who under John Paul II was appointed to head up the Pontifical Institute for Studies of Marriage and the Family, which no longer is operating under that name and no longer operating under the vision of John Paul II. It's another story and a talk for another time, maybe. But she wrote to this cardinal who is in charge of making sure proper studies were done of anthropology, of divine revelation, to make sure families were healthy. She writes to him, the final battle between the Lord and the kingdom of Satan will be about marriage and the family. Don't be afraid, because whoever works for the sanctity of marriage and family will always be fought against and opposed in every way. Hit the pause button for a second, right? Don't be afraid, because whoever works for sanctity of marriage and the family, that's all of us, right? whether it's by word, whether it's by teaching, or whether it's in the trenches by living it, don't be afraid, because it will always be opposed and fought against in every way. Because this is the divisive issue, the decisive issue. However, I love this. Our lady has already crushed the serpent's head. The vote that's coming up for you guys right around the corner the horrific things that are included in that, that possibly could pass. If you look at the book of Revelation, there's the unholy trinity in the book of Revelation, right? It's like the Holy Trinity is revealed to us, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. The evil one can do absolutely nothing creative. All he can do is mock. So there's this dragon, right? The same certain that enters into the Garden of Eden. This great dragon in the book of Revelation. Then there's this beast, that climbs up out of the waters in the book of Revelation. Father Malachi mentioned earlier, it's the waters that are this area of chaos, mythically speaking, as well as in the scriptures. And it's this beast that comes up out of these waters, out of the chaos. Which on a side note, I find it particularly interesting. God calls fishermen to be his priests, the men that aren't afraid to go out into the chaos of the waters in the dark night to be able to try their best with God's grace to tame the chaos that is out there in order to bring God's grace and his order to the ravages of the world, right? And fathers of families are supposed to be doing the same things in their own ways. Nonetheless, this beast that comes up out of the waters, this beast in the book of Revelation is the worldly kingdoms, the kingdoms of this world. It is the secular governments that turn away from God. And where do they get their power from? They get their power from the dragon, when a culture turns away from Christ, a culture doesn't just blindly float through society. It's guided by its individual members. And once those individual members are no longer God-fearing, they're going to give in to the lies of the evil one. And therefore, this beast that is the world governments become controlled by the evil one. So you have the beast, you have the dragon that controls it, and the third person of this unholy trinity in the book of Revelation is the unfaithful woman, right? The whore of Babylon. And that is the religious society that in turn gets their power by being in corruption with the worldly government, with the beast. This unholy woman starts riding on this beast. Get the image, right? It's Jerusalem of St. John's time who is in cahoots with the worldly governments, No longer in getting their power, from divine life, but getting their power from cooperation with the worldly government. We need to be careful as a church. But Our Lady, right, comes to the defense. Our Lady is the one that will keep us strong, that will keep us safe. This whole idea of breaking down the family has been the evil one's agenda all along, right from the Garden of Eden, the lies that come forth between Adam and Eve, right away after the, the fruit is eaten. The cultural Marxism that's been operating within our culture, the seeds have been planted here, it's been under work for at least two generations now. And if you take... Not to go on a tangent, give me two minutes here, right? Karl Marx's idea, above all else, not just a cultural revolution to overthrow the bourgeois with the proletariat. It's to break down the family and to break down religion because those are the two obstacles to what he wanted to do. So part of the big plan for that is to lower morality, no divorce, no-fault divorce laws, and for civil society to be in charge of educating the children rather than the families. The tool that they didn't have up until just a few years ago is the transgender movement. And they're using that to be able to take authority away from the parents to give it to the children as just another tool to break down the families. Uh, The evil one has a plan, right? The beast is empowered by the dragon. We need to make sure that we're not riding on the beast. And no matter what laws pass, we know this kingdom is fading away anyway. Our citizenship is in heaven. And that is ultimately where our hope comes from. It is a battle. And that's all right. The Lord tells us it will be. We just have to make sure we're willing to fight and to be on the right side of that battle. We are Christ's body. He is the head. And we are his body as the church. Formation is so important for all of us. Continuing formation for myself as a priest and families, for you guys to get out and do something like this on a regular basis. Our hearts will lead us astray. But if our heads are formed properly and we know what the truth is, in a sense, there's a path cut through the woods to where when our hearts want to go astray, that path has already been cleared and our hearts know where to follow. So that when the temptations get difficult or things get cloudy enough, or that fog gets too thick, and we don't exactly know which way to go. If we're formed well enough, our hearts won't go astray. We'll follow where it is that the Lord wants us to go. It's not just about ritual. It's not just about relationship. It's about that relationship that forms within that ritual. And that relationship of our hearts with Jesus Christ's heart is ideally what we always need to follow. To where whatever Jesus wants is already what we want. And we don't have to stop and ask a bunch of questions every moment because we know his heart, and therefore our hearts want nothing more than to follow his heart. And they spontaneously do so. We just have to be willing to be formed enough for our heads to know it so that our hearts can also grow and to desire it. And that's difficult in family life. As a religious... My responsibility in life is to live out my baptism completely, to be conformed to Jesus Christ. In his life, in his passion, in his death, in his resurrection. Married couples out there, your vocation in life to be conformed to Christ in his life, in his passion, his death, his resurrection. It's not complicated, but it's quite painful. And it means a lot of dying to ourselves so that we can live authentically, holy, of making our life as a gift to our loved one, to our children, to our religious community, or as a priest to the people that we serve. When I became a servant of the friary where I am, the brother in charge of the local friary, I went to one of our older brothers. And I said, hey, give me some advice of being a good father to the brothers there. And he said the only advice I can give you is prepare to be crucified. Thanks a lot. Next time you want to give me some advice, don't. <laughs> Father Malachi became a servant of the friary where he is about where he is about a year ago. He came up to me and said, Give me any advice? And I said, Well, just prepare to be crucified. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> no matter how much you try to serve and love, right? The people that you love, the people that you serve. Sometimes don't understand that you do have the best intentions. It hurts. You get misunderstood. That's all right. The important part about it is that we're coming from the right place, willing to serve, willing to give our hearts, because God will use everything to shape us into his son, being willing to give our life out of love for those whom it is that we serve. So the formation. I'd like to briefly speak, speak about three things, right? Formation, forgiveness, and then the firewall. The firewall is the protecting part of keeping it out. And the formation is the tilling part of making sure that the garden is healthy. Formation. This is the formation of the head so that we can clear the path through the woods so that the heart can follow. We talk a lot in religious life about affective formation, which basically means your heart is on the same page as your head. That you know the faith, but you also fall in love with it. And your heart spontaneously jumps with the things that God's heart jumps for. Your heart spontaneously hurts for the things that God's heart hurts for as well. At the end of the day... We all do some form of examination of conscience, right? Or at least we should be. St. Teresa will say, St. Teresa of Avila, if you're not doing an examination of the conscience at the end of the day, you're not worthy of the name of being a Christian. That's a strong saying that really gives you a good kick to the shin to make sure you're doing an examination of conscience at the end of the day. And what I mean by that, right, simply going through your day with the Lord. Where were you, Lord? How did I respond? And how did I miss it? How can I do better tomorrow? Asking the Lord for forgiveness and committing to do your best the next day, to be able to do that divine dance with Him a little bit better the next day, right? Right. Not only do we do that with the Lord. Speaking of Greg last night, this beautiful idea of sitting down with your spouse. Where's your heart, honey? And how can I help you? How may I have hurt you? How can I apologize? Imagine if every husband and wife did that at the end of the day, how different relationships would be. And I realized, right, the practicality of that happening every day isn't too practical. But man, when it can happen, how beautiful that would be, how transforming of relationships, something like that could be. To take the vows that you took at your wedding and to use that for your own examination of conscience at the end of the day, how am I loving serving, honoring, cherishing my bride, my husband at every moment? How am I doing my best to raise my children in the faith, to love them, to give my life for them? How much am I actually holding back for myself? To take something like that at the end of every day, to try to make sure the train that you're running is staying on the right tracks and operating between the ditches. Retreats like marriage encounter, retreats like today, right? To be together as a family, but also husbands and wives, to be able to take time to step away, something like a marriage encounter weekend, to take that time, not necessarily to fall in love again, but to rekindle that flame in the fireplace of God's house, of how God wants his marriages to be, to take that time to love one another. Father John Anthony, the other night, he was speaking to uh, to Seth. Seth just got married a little while ago. Father John Anthony asked him how old he was. He said he was around twenty three. Is that right? He said, "You can do it. You can make it to eighty years of marriage." Here's your challenge. Yeah, take your vitamins, right, and all that stuff. Father John Anthony mentioned he had a he had an uncle who was married for eighty years. And he said, he asked his uncle, you know, how'd you do it? He said, well, we were married before the Lord. We figured we'd invite him into everyday life as well. So we pray together every day. So we take God's word seriously so we don't go to bed at night. If there's anything going on between us, we need to apologize about. It's good. And then he smiled and he said there would be a twinkle in his uncle's eye. He said, I also have a big garden in the backyard. There's enough space for him just to kind of get out, but not necessarily like to get away or to blow off steam. But no matter what he was doing, it was something constructive for the family that he could turn around and give to his wife, to his children. And the beauty of that, right? Simply following what the Lord has been asking, trying to be on the same page with the Lord, But realize, and also, we need space. We need time. But to never allow that to be selfish, but always something good for those whom it is that we are serving. I heard a statistic recently amongst our brothers one in every three of our brothers is in some kind of therapy right now. None of us come from perfect families, nobody in the world comes from a perfect family. We all need some kind of healing. If there's some kind of roadblocks or obstacles in your life that keep you from fully being able to love and freedom, your spouse, your children, there's no stigma, there's no shame in reaching out for the help that you need. And I, I say this with, with caution. I realize it's a mixed crowd. If there's things going on in the internet that are active in men's lives or women's lives, a lot of times therapy is needed to break that. I couldn't you encourage more. I couldn't encourage you more to seek the therapy necessary to be able to live in freedom, to be able to love wholeheartedly your spouse and your children. Uh, Other things, right? This is where the, the garden gets tilled, where it gets worked. A date night, not necessarily with your spouse every month, but with each one of your children every month. I've got a good friend with 10 children Four adopted, five of his own, and every single month, he takes one of his children out, just the two of them. And it doesn't mean they go somewhere and spend money together, right? With that many kids, there's not a whole lot of extra money to spend, but a peanut butter and jelly sandwich for dinner at the park together with each one of his children, one on one, monthly. And the beauty of that, and is his family life perfect? No, but man, his kids love him. And it's quite beautiful. So beautiful. On birthdays in our friary, and I think it's a beautiful practice in families, the families that I've seen it, at the end of dinner, we'll honor the brothers whose birthday it is. So what that means is all of the brothers will have a chance to say, you know, Brother Damien, I'd like to honor you because you have the shiniest bald head in the community. Not as shiny, maybe not as shiny as mine, but... Something good, right? Something beautiful, something upbuilding. And everyone in the family will honor that one particular child, daughter, the husband, the mother, whoever it is day that they celebrate. Something else that, that we do in a friary that, that some of you guys are doing, I saw it on one of the, the note cards, and I think it's part of this six week commitment that, that everyone will hopefully make today. We call it fraternal sharing. When we're younger brothers, we hate it because we don't want to talk about our emotions, right? We're young men. We come from the world, and we're not going to talk about our emotions. As we get older, it becomes the highlight of the brother's week sometimes to be able to sit around and simply mention, we each have about a three-minute window. Another brother can't break in, and we just say our highlight of the week, our high, where we see God is working, and we say our, our low, our cross of the week, where we need prayer and we're pretty vulnerable, realizing it's a mixed group. Nonetheless, here's where God is working, and here's where the cross is that, yeah, God is still working, but man, do I need your help? And if families, if you guys can somewhat adapt that to your own life, to where your children can share in that in some way, you know what's going on in each individual member of your family's heart, at least to the extent they're willing to share that. That way, when you're tempted to blow up over little Johnny doing something, you realize little Johnny is a little bit more stressed and worried about X, Y, and Z that you just didn't know about because he didn't have a context to be able to explain that. And Johnny will be better for the rest of his life knowing how to share on a much deeper level than any man in our culture is being taught out there in the world. His family will be better served of it because of it and his wife will be able to to love him much more easily as well because he will know how to express who he is. And you can love someone to the extent that you really know them. I love you all in Christ. I haven't met all of you. But those I love the most in this room, Brother Damien, I love Brother Damien so much more because I know him so much more. And to the extent that we're willing to allow other people to know us, that's the extent that we can really expect to be loved by them. Hence it is so necessary, right? That self revelation, of course, in an appropriate in a healthy way. And also to to get out as a family, as you're able to to serve. We run a small soup kitchen in the friary where I am, and there's quite a few families that will bring five, six or their nine children, and we have certain things that the families can plug into whether it's you know starting through clothing for the clothing handouts or helping clean the kitchen after the soup kitchen, but to foster a real awareness in the children's lives of service to others outside the family. If we're really baptized into the heart of the Trinity and there's this radical dance going on within the Trinity of love and joy and excitement, and that becomes our own heart, we can't help but also be creative. And oftentimes that is in service to those who are in need. Those who can't, can't take care of themselves. So that's like part of the formative part, right? Quickly just to move into the whole idea of forgiveness. My mom and dad, not to go into a big story, but it's where my heart is. My mom and dad, beautiful people, love them dearly. There's no animosity or angst towards either one of them. Uh, they're both my heroes in different ways. Mom and dad divorced after 30 years of marriage. I was 21 years old. Like, Come on, mom and dad, right? You've made it this far. Something happened in their life where they took their eyes off of our Lord, and they gave in to the culture. And rather than persevering and fighting for it, the easiest way was to go their separate ways. Sent me for a tailspin for a good decade. Right? And kids are resilient. That's a lie. Even an adult child. Non-resilient. And for those of you like from broken families, with broken families, God's grace is there. The seeds of my religious vocation, I think, were in a part because of God allowing mom and dad to go their separate ways. But when forgiveness is not the centerpiece of the table every night, something's off. Because even in the most perfect relationship, if Jesus Christ isn't center, that relationship isn't perfect. In the center of Jesus Christ's heart is mercy, is forgiveness. We not only have to be willing to forgive the other one, but we have to be willing to allow ourselves to be forgiven. So many couples that come to me with their challenges... It's often because something has happened in the relationship, the spouse wants to forgive them and has forgiven them, but the one who has caused the challenge initially, whether it has been infidelity, whether it has been something much less, whatever it is, because they often are unwilling to forgive themselves, they're unable to allow that relationship to be mended. So not only being willing to forgive the other one, but also being willing to allow yourself to be forgiven. Quote from the Catechism, paragraph 2843. Speaking about forgiveness, just to, to recognize, all right, it's not the easiest thing to do, but it might not be exactly what we always think it might be. So also my Heavenly Father will do to every one of you, speaking about the parable of the unmerciful servant, if you do not forgive your brother from your heart, there is in fact In the depths of the heart, that everything is bound and loosened. It's not in our power not to feel or to forget an offense. Repeat that line. It's not in our power not to feel or to forget an offense. In other words, my heart can still be in turmoil, and I can have a whole lot of trouble not thinking about it. That doesn't mean that you're not doing the work of forgiveness. Catechism continues, but, however, the heart that offers itself to the Holy Spirit turns injury into compassion and purifies the memory by transforming the hurt into intercession. To put that simply, there's hurt, there's pain, I've chosen to forgive, but I still struggle with it. In other words, the hurt and the pain that I still go through that becomes this prayer of intercession for the other person. There's no greater love than to lay down your life for your friends, for your brother, for your spouse. That's where the rubber hits the road. Here's the hurt, and I'm making that hurt my prayer for the conversion of my loved one. I'm choosing not to hold on to it, but if I still experience it, if I still hurt because of it, here it is. I give it back to you, Lord. And if he's allowing it to fester... He's going to do something with it. Give it back to him. Allow him to purify it. St. Paul, his letters to the Romans, chapter 13, have no debt to anyone except the debt to love one another. No matter how much we love, no matter how much we give of ourselves, there's still a debt there to love more, to put more love into that relationship, to give more. Okay, formation, forgiveness. The last thing. This firewall, this is, the, this is the protection, right? As Adam was supposed to keep the serpent out of the garden, and as we are supposed to keep the serpent, the evil one, out of our family's lives, out of our minds, some simple ways to help keep it out of the family, right? The Kind of the big ways the evil one starts to work in today's world. First of all, the firewall, right? The media influence, the media influence, uh, the technology that's coming into the homes, that's coming into the pockets, that's coming into the cell phones, the smartphones. Uh, Communist China will not allow, right, a lot of things coming through the Internet, not to relate families or even our, our friaries to anything like that. But what comes in and how it comes in not only has to be monitored, but it has to in some way be regulated. There's, uh, take for example, if you were to be given a mansion, picture that mansion. You can do whatever you want with it and you can furnish it any way at all. You do this with high school students, it's quite fun, and they start giving examples of how they want to furnish their mansion. And you go on with this and you allow it to become as excessive as they want to make it. And you say, would you allow the city to start pumping raw sewage into that mansion? Oh, no way, no way, right? Would you allow garbage to be pumped into that mansion? No way, no way. Why are you talking about this? That mansion, right, is our minds, is our children's minds. We have to be careful what is placed within those mansions. And if there is free access to what goes on in the world, the world doesn't have a whole lot of good to offer. Right for furnishings within that beautiful mansion, which is our mind. We have to be careful not only of what we take in, but what we allow to be placed within our children's minds. To say no to things. Every child can do everything. My brother's one of the best men in the world. He's got five children, and each one of his children are the all-stars on about five different teams. My brother, rather than running a household, he runs a shuttle bus to Kitty sports. And he's doing his best, and who am I to tell him how he should run his family? But there's a real temptation to doing all these things out in the world that are really, really good, that take away from the simplicity and the beauty of family life. And that's where formation really happens. This love that happens on the ground level of the children being able to allow their hearts to grow in the ordinariness of family life rather than all these things that have to happen all the time. Be careful, right, who your friends associate with. My mom used to read the arrest column when I was growing up, and she saw one of my buddies in high school's name that got arrested. I was no longer allowed to be his friend. Our Lady is the one, the beauty of Our Lady, who keeps everything together, who will look over us, and who will watch over us. Got about seven minutes left. I'd like to finish with a story about Our Lady I grew up in South Louisiana on the coast of South Louisiana, right south of New Orleans. In 1815, we fought the Battle of New Orleans. And I'll cut some of the backstory short because of time. But the Ursuline sisters were in New Orleans. They have a strong devotion to Our Lady under the title of Our Lady of Prompt Succor. The Cajun people back home pronounce her name Our Lady of Prompt Succor. As a little boy, I thought she was a patron of the ones who couldn't find a date to the prom. Our Lady of Prom Succor. Our Lady of Quick Help. Properly pronounced Notre Dame de Prompt Succor. Our Lady of Quick Help. Our Lady had a beautiful wooden statue made of her. Wrapped in gold, holding the child Jesus, the child Jesus with a crown, holding the, holding the planet Earth there. Full of power, full of majesty. The Battle of New Orleans is about to happen. So Andrew Jackson is sent by the U.S. government down to New Orleans to try to rally the forces of the people in New Orleans. There's not a whole lot of people that are able to fight. There's no real militia there. Troops from Kentucky, troops from the volunteers from Tennessee come down. There's about 5,000 ragtag militia also fighting with the pirate Jean Lafitte to try to save the city of New Orleans. The British have 48 of the world's finest military battleships down there somewhere in the Caribbean. I forget exactly where they're stationed. They're buying their time, waiting for the right moment to come in and fight. They have 20,000 troops to come in and walk on New Orleans. 20,000 of the world's finest trained military, naval troops, 48 battleships to come and walk into the city of New Orleans with only 5,000 ragtag militia. There weren't enough weapons for the men in New Orleans to be able to fight with that they were told by Andrew Jackson to go and take the axles off of your trailers, whatever kind of tractors they may have had back then, hollow them out, and we'll make them into little cannons. There wasn't a whole lot of hope for the city to be, to be defended whatsoever. It was the night of January 7th. Andrew Jackson gets intel that the, the military ships... From Great Britain are working their way in. Now, there were 17 different entry spots that the British could have made their way into the city of New Orleans. New Orleans only had enough men to be able to stop the battle if they came in from one specific spot. Andrew Jackson put all of his eggs in one basket, sent all of his men to this one spot. They dug a deep moat. It was filled with water. The water table back home is about a foot below the ground anyway. They didn't have to add anything. They built a strong wall on the other side of that moat. The British came in. All of the women and the children of the city go to the Ursuline Shrine. All of them, as many that could fit. They spend the night in vigil, praying the rosary before Our Lady of Quick Help, Our Lady of Prompt Succor. They hear the cannon starting off in the distance. Daylight has, daylight has dawned. Heavy fog... The fog is lifted, right? Just like these other military battles that Our Lady has interceded in that you hear about over history. The fog is lifted. All of the British, thanks be to God, are running in right in the spot where the city will be defended. They made a strategic mistake. They brought no scaling ladders, and they were unable to cross that moat. Not a single, not a single British soldier made it into the city of New Orleans for the Battle of New Orleans there were 20 times as many casualties amongst the British forces as there were amongst the New Orleanians. The New Orleanians had eight casualties, and I don't mean deaths. I mean wounded men, and that was it. As masses started in the Ursuline Shrine, about 10 miles away, less than 10 miles away, the gunshots, the cannon fire was heard in the distance, the bishop is there celebrating Mass. The time for communion, a courier runs in, jumps off his horse, and says, the British have been defeated. They're fleeting. Our city has been saved. Our home has been saved. Our loved ones have been saved. Our Lady has done this for us. Andrew Jackson goes to the Ursuline sisters the next day, and this is in their their chronicles, and thanks them. If it weren't for your prayers and divine intervention, the city never possibly could have been saved. And if New Orleans had been taken in 1815, the Mississippi River would have been controlled by them. And we wouldn't have the country that we have today. Our Lord and Our Lady gave us another chance to live in a place of the free, of the brave, and of those who are willing to love and worship and serve Him. And if we continue to do that, no matter what happens, our Lord and Our Lady will protect and watch over us. They're not playing games with us. That doesn't mean our country will be as strong as it's ever been, but that means His love and our hearts will be as strong as they possibly can be. And that's the only thing that will last anyway, and therefore that is the most important thing. A hundred years later, Pope Leo the Thirteenth declares Our Lady of Prom in the statue in New Orleans, a miraculous statue. He sends a papal delegate to New Orleans to crown the statue. There's pictures, images of Our Lady of Prom that are published. My great-great-grandmother is there, gets one of these pictures, brings it home to her house. A year later, her little girl, Mae Ayo, is dropped. They were scared by a horse, apparently is a story that the family tells. Mae was trampled by some type of horse carriage. May Ios' father, my great-great-grandfather, was a little country doctor. He said, there's no hope for your little girl to survive. There's no hope for his little girl to survive. He called his doctor friends in from the city. They gave him the same prognosis. Make her comfortable. There's no way she's going to survive. Her mother, a mother in faith, believed in miracles. She got all the kids. They prayed a vigil that night before that image of Our Lady of Quick Help, Our Lady of Prompt Succor. May I owe that little girl, woke up the next day. She survived. Her face was a little crooked from the cracked, the fractures in her skull as a two year old little girl. But nonetheless, she died at 95 years old in 1995. I was 12 years old in 1992. She was 92 years old. We went to the little parish right outside where this accident had happened. There's a statue of Our Lady of Prompt there. My great-grandmother had a lot of her jewelry from her life, her costume jewelry, her fine jewelry, and she had it all made into a crown. She placed that crown on Our Lady of Prompt and she told that story that night. The reason that we have the country we have, we have the home that we have, we have the family that we have, that we had one another, and that everyone in that room was alive was because of Our Lady of Prompt And the power of the rosary. I was a 12-year-old boy. I kind of left scratching my head in the back of that room. But I knew the reason I was alive was because of this beautiful lady in heaven that was fighting for me. Brothers and sisters, that's true of all of us. We have a mother in heaven that will fight for us, that will fight for our culture, that will fight for our families, that will fight for our home, that will fight for our little ones. We have to entrust ourselves to her, to her son Jesus, so that we may live, if not external freedom, we can live in interior freedom, so that we can grow into the men and the women, the saints that God has called us to be. And we will not only sell God short, but we will sell ourselves short if we settle for anything less than that. Not only does holiness depend upon it, But that's our joy. That's our freedom. That's our love. That's eternal bliss. Either we're trying to make our own dance in this life, we're unwilling to sing this love song that God has created, or we're willing to live in the heart of him, to allow him to take us out onto the dance floor of life, no matter how embarrassing or how ridiculous it might look for us. That's where freedom is. That's where love is. That's where his protection is. May we support one another. Encourage one another to live that way so that we may become who it is that God has called us to be. Amen.
2: have been listening to a very special episode of Ignite Radio Live that we're calling Sanktou Series Eight Incredible Weeks Through Advent and Into the Heart of Christ's Mass featuring the Franciscan Friars of the Renewal with worship led by Seth Schleter. If you feel like you missed something or you want to make sure you hear it all on demand you can go to IgniteRadioLive.com and certainly find our program Ignite Radio Live on any podcast. Embrace the seven-week challenge. God appointed and anointed us to make our homes that kind of place. Embrace it. Just go again to massimpact.us forward slash seven week challenge. Again, the number seven week challenge. It'll take you 15 seconds to fill out that form uh, and journey with us. And we do ask that you please consider in this season coming alongside of us. Our mission is to see families united in building the kingdom. God's means of making his very presence known. We can't do it alone. We need each other. We are all in, in this mission. We're trusting in God's grace. Please partner with us. When you go to massimpact.us, click on that partner tab. Thanks so much. Until next week, God bless you. Hey, I will keep counting my blessings. No, I can't count that high.